Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. In this contemplation, we will reflect on the non-duality of wisdom and wildness. And in the process, we'll honor the person whose image serves as the icon for this podcast. If you've seen the icon image, you know we're talking about an equine person, not a human person. But you don't have to have any particular interest in horses to benefit from our reflections. We could even go so far as to suggest that people without horses in their lives may benefit the most, because those who have horses can sometimes find it challenging to take a step back and look with fresh eyes. All the same, horse lovers can certainly enjoy this contemplation, and all human beings can benefit from understanding even a little of the dangerous wisdom of horses, because it relates to the deepest need we all have right now. And the horse is both a mirror for our soul as well as a portal or vehicle for our soul. We could call it the Gotakayana. If you know some Eastern philosophy, you might have heard of the Mahayana and the Vajrayana. Mahayana means great vehicle. Vajrayana means the diamond vehicle or indestructible vehicle or thunder vehicle, something like that. And so then Gotakayana means horse vehicle. And we let the horse lead us along our spiritual path today because the horse has an archetypal presence. The horse is a, a spiritual keystone species. We can't cover all the dangerous wisdom of the horse, but we'll do what we can, touching on wildness and wonder and seeking to let some of the horse's luminosity into the shadows of the human soul and into the shadows of the collective consciousness as well, the collective unconscious, we should say. Now, I think we'll probably need two contemplations. First, we will think together about the dangerous wisdom stallion and some of what he represents in an archetypal way. And then we'll, as part of that, consider a story, something that actually happened with him, which might at first seem small or even insignificant. But if we take good care of this story, it may germinate in the soul and help us to learn some lessons about love, wildness, renunciation, the good kind of renunciation, nothing boring. So we'll face a little dangerous wisdom in this story, and it may prove a little uncomfortable for some of us. Some of the further uncomfortable implications of that story will emerge in a second contemplation. So in that second contemplation, we'll maybe look a little bit more at some of the details of the implications for our life together. And so these two contemplations will have to do it, it in part with the non-duality of spiritual and ecological reality and finding a way for us to relate more skillfully with the sacred, a way for us to become what we are instead of remaining what we have become, both as individuals and as cultures and a global society, a planetary community of life. 
So let's start with that horse, the horse whose eyes you can gaze into when you look at the Dangerous Wisdom podcast icon. The Dangerous Wisdom stallion is a very intense being. If you meet him in person, he presences the very knife edge of the wild, which makes sense because he was born wild, born free. He's not a domesticated being. Standing in front of him reminds you that the wild and the world are as sharp as the edge of a knife. Wisdom itself sometimes appears as a knife edge or sword. Manjushri, the great cosmic being representing wisdom, one of the archetypal images of wisdom, appears with a sword that cuts through all delusion. And similarly, the Kartika blade of the sky dancers also cuts away delusion. The dangerous wisdom stallion offers to cut away our delusions and lead us to insight. This sharp edge of wisdom and wildness goes together with peace. We might not think of it that way at first, might not realize that true peace has a fierceness to it. True peace is noble, bold, and unshakable. And true peace can't be tamed. I wouldn't say that this particular Mustang, our dangerous wisdom stallion, I wouldn't say that he was at peace when I knew him. But he had a fierceness and a fearlessness that belong to true peace, and he surely couldn't be tamed. Our dangerous wisdom stallion reminds us that wisdom and wildness are not two things. Kind of in an automatic way, we think of them as two things. Sigmund Freud famously claimed that the whole purpose of civilization is to protect us from nature. It's an absurd suggestion, since we belong to nature, and we depend on nature. We must be in good, healthy, vitalizing relationship with nature, with ourselves. And we have to remember that Freud was not a complete idiot. He was a bright guy. But he was a bright guy within the dominant culture. The dominant culture so infests us or infects us with its ignorant philosophies that even the smartest people can think the silliest thoughts. So Freud was a bit of a fool in many ways, just like the rest of us, infected by this culture. Even our spiritual traditions can fall prey to it a little bit because they're relating to people caught up in this culture. And it might hold especially true in spiritual traditions that come from cultures with a long history and early adoption of money because the use of money tends to go with the development of armies and conquest. So a long literary history and a long history of relationship with money could be signs of the need for a spiritual tradition and the presence of one, because it's like the, that spiritual tradition rises up to deal with the presence of a whole lot of print and uh, money, which would go together with conquest. So it's another way of saying that some of the spiritual traditions we have, famous ones, 
kind of arose as a consequence of what we refer to as civilization, which is, should be ironic because we think of civilization as somehow this good thing, so why did it need philosophy as a therapeutic response to itself? And we should say maybe that civilization is just not the best word for what we're talking about. We should probably refer to it as conquest consciousness and conquest culture. And we shouldn't equate the conquest style of mind with culture or with civilization in general in their most positive sense. The trick is that we do that, though. That's, it's a habitual way of thinking of ourselves and our history and our culture, especially those of us in the dominant culture, and it's a mistake. Because what we would more narrowly refer to as civilization tends to be a manifestation of an unbalanced mind. And that unbalanced mind is not a requirement for having a culture or having something that we would rightfully refer to as civilization. Human culture could function to produce balanced minds, resilient, wise, compassionate, fierce, peaceful, joyful, beautiful, creative minds. But what the dominant culture thinks of as civilization has produced a rather dangerous mind. Not dangerous because of its wisdom, but dangerous because of its ignorance. And a central manifestation of dangerous ignorance arises as a duality, a split between nature and culture. That's what we hear in Freud's view of civilization, and it's what we practice in the dominant culture as our way of life. The functional relationship we have is that culture is where we are away from nature. And when we look at the dangerous wisdom stallion, we see a fierce mustang. We see the knife edge of wisdom, the knife edge of wildness, And we see a being who got taken out of the wild, out of nature, and put into a place more civilized, with fences, paved roads, fast food, fast cars, junk ease, and all the rest. So because he had to get subjected to the insanity of a split between nature and culture, he became rather agitated. If you saw him, he was often pretty agitated. He wanted to do something about the situation, and he wanted to live life in a way that doesn't recognize human projected barriers on the world. And all of this matters for the story we're we're considering, that we will consider. When we look at the dangerous wisdom stallion, we're looking at the kind of person who will break down our fences in order to liberate the captives within them. We're looking at a being who knows how to survive with nature, with wildness, a being with grit and intelligence, a being who doesn't respect human possessiveness, human greed, or any form of human conquest. He's wildness embodied, wisdom embodied, nature inhabited, the very presence of the sentience of nature, the mindedness of nature. And if we have the sensitivity, if we let ourselves, we can sense the danger of all of that. 
the spirit of the Mustang threatens all of us in the dominant culture because we're not sure how to live with wildness. Which is really like saying we don't know how to live with wisdom. In his marvelous essay, The Etiquette of Freedom, the great Turtle Island poet Gary Snyder writes the following, quote, Thoreau says, give me a wildness no civilization can endure. That's clearly not difficult to find. It is harder to imagine a civilization that wildness can endure. Yet this is just what we must try to do. Wildness is not just the preservation of the world. It is the world. Civilizations east and west have long been on a collision course with wild nature, and now the developed nations in particular have the witless power to destroy not only individual creatures but whole species, whole processes of the earth. We need a civilization that can live fully and creatively together with wildness. We must start growing it right here in the new world. End quote. Now that's from his book, The Practice of the Wild, which I strongly recommend as a marvelous guide to thinking into some of the challenges that we face. And we need to start growing a real civilization, not just here on Turtle Island, but you know, everywhere where the conquest consciousness has settled in and infected people. We need cultures rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, which means cultures that know how to live with wildness. It's what a real indigenous culture can do, and it's why it's part of re-indigenizing or decolonizing. Those two really have to go together. Only a culture that knows how to live with wildness knows how to live with the world knows how to be part of the world. That's what our stallion, our dangerous wisdom stallion, represents, the presence of the wild and the profound invitation to learn the non-duality of wisdom and wildness, an invitation to live with the world in a participatory manner that cultivates the whole of life onward. And that feels dangerous, that stallion looking at us in a way that threatens us because of this invitation to re-indigenize, which seems scary when we have the idea that civilization protects us from nature. So there's a threat right there in that glance. And even again for the wisdom traditions, because we have to rethink some of our metaphors that we use. Some of our wisdom traditions have used the metaphor of taming wildness to teach us how to work with our mind. And again, they had to do that because they were trapped inside conquest culture, a lot of the ones who, that do this. And these are just metaphors. It's a way to, you know, to explain to someone trapped in conquest consciousness how to get free of it. And it, it probably just didn't seem skillful to them to talk about undomesticating ourselves. 
But that's really what, what meditation, say, for instance, does. It, it undomesticates and re-indigenizes our mind to itself and to the nature of reality. But the way the metaphors often work is that the mind gets compared to, say, a wild elephant or even a wild horse. It's, and so the idea is, that, hey, your mind is like a wild elephant or a wild horse and you have to tame it. But when we look closely, we find it's just a metaphor, it's just a little story or even a lie, you could say. One that maintains a recognition that the mind must be liberated, which is not really the same as being tamed or domesticated. And indeed, is what we often find is it's the opposite. So wildness in the sense that these spiritual metaphors intend just means out of control. But wildness as we mean it here has to do with the proper functioning of mind and nature, which is not chaotic in that narrow sense. Now we might find part of the trouble in the threatening qualities of nature and the sacred in general. Because of course, we had the issue that we're, we're touching on here that we've divided ourselves away. We've divided, split nature and culture. But there's also this other sense of the sacred itself because one way to define the sacred is that aspect of reality which evokes fear and trembling in the untrained heart. And so even a healthy culture will, will have people experience that from time to time because only the most developed uh, beings in that culture will be able to to face the sacred with, without that sense of fear and trembling, or maybe it's just always there. We, we, it's not really clear. We get certain images uh, where we see spiritual progress means that we have trained enough and we are so in attunement with the great mystery that we can turn toward it without fear and trembling. But naively, even in a healthy culture, people are going to experience that. And the dangerous wisdom stallion in per person, and maybe you can see it in his glance in the image. If you look at that photograph, uh, his intensity is there. It's kind of special that he was actually looking at me, someone who is not ordinarily concerned with human beings. But he seems threatening because he functions in accord with nature and not in accord with human whims or human you know, clinging, craving, hope, fear. Like nature in general, our dangerous wisdom stallion could at any moment shatter human delusions in rather painful ways. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the dangerous wisdom of a stallion like that, or the dangerous wisdom that we can still see even in a, a so-called domesticated horse? Because you can't f fully take all the wildness out of a horse. And we could say that in general, we repress and suppress. Repression means the process remains unconscious. Whatever it is that we could see, we're not even getting a glimpse of it because we, we make sure that we don't look. So we don't know anything about it. It's unconscious. Suppression means that we may have gotten some glimpses, but we keep pushing it back down into the psyche. So there's this kind of play where something is kind of consciously registering, at least in part or at least in moments, 
and that then we suppress, we push it back into a subliminal or subconscious or unconscious realm, whereas the repression is fully unconscious. And I think we can find fairly easily in our habits of life evidence of repression and suppression of many aspects of spiritual and ecological reality. Sometimes it's hard to discern. Certainly if it's, if it's repression in our own case, we're not going to see it. But we can see it in others sometimes. Or we can see the evidence of it. Now, for instance, I think we can see evidence of repression and suppression of our awareness of mind. We can repress and suppress our ability to directly, intimately acknowledge the mindedness all around us, that we are interwoven with ecologies of mind. When we go into a forest, we, we can sense mind all around us, but you know, we often just think we're walking in the woods. So we, we kind of push it down, but there's a will to life, a capacity for suffering and joy an awareness, an intelligence at work right there. And we can notice here that we have a hard time, sometimes at least, even acknowledging another human being as really fully human like ourselves. And there are just these subtle ways in which we disconnect from even other human beings, let alone the larger ecologies of mind and other beings in the community of life. And what we say about when we do this with other human beings is that we're dehumanizing them. And that in itself is maybe a funny phrase or a telling phrase. What does it mean to dehumanize someone? Well, it means to make them less than human. And what would that be? What's less than human? Well, an animal, right? And yet we ourselves are animals, So what we had to do first, to make dehumanizing possible, we had to demind our kin, the other animals who share our world and make our lives possible in the first place. And I, 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 I don't know if I've shared this story before in, in one of these contemplations, but I just always remember when I was a little kid, about seven years old, and the teacher asked, who here thinks that they're an animal? I don't know what would make this was, I don't know, maybe the teacher was an animal rights advocate secretly. I don't know why she asked this to a bunch of seven-year-olds. Uh, well, I was a little, slightly younger, eight-year-olds. And so I remember this one kid raised his hand. He's the only person who raised his hand. And he was kind of like a little bit of a class clown. So my reaction was to laugh. I thought he was joking. And all the rest of us sat there, this one kid, and he's the jokester, right? And he raises his hand, and I'm thinking, yeah, you're a real animal. And the teacher then said, you're right. Human beings are animals. And I was astonished. And it, it, it occurred to me how weird that was, because one of the most important beings in my life was my dog, and I certainly didn't, I thought of him as a person. He was such an important person in my life. And I was really struck as this little boy, thinking, now why did I think that? And I think the general process here is not dehumanizing then when we do this, especially when we do it to other human beings. The general process is taking away the mind, heart, dignity, and wholeness of another being's psyche and creating a kind of human privilege as well. 
that somehow we're on top. All the dignity, all the mind, all the heart and wholeness go to the humans. So we're so human-centric. So many of us suffer from such human privilege that we worry about dehumanizing as opposed to acknowledging that our culture indoctrinates us into a style of consciousness that habitually lacks sensitivity and compassion. doesn't matter what the being involved is, human or not. Conquest consciousness, as it manifests and has for some time, certainly in the dominant culture, includes a callousness, crassness, and ignorance about mind in general, about psyche and soul everywhere, all around us, whether it's human or not. So sure, we do this to other human beings, but we do it already and automatically to so many non-human beings and to Earth as a whole. And that is not more acceptable. Because those beings, first of all, have their own meaning, purpose, and trajectory. They are as sacred as we are. And we also depend on them. And moreover, we're talking about a basic process. If you, if you try to correct it just in relationship to other human beings, you're missing that it's a deeper process. Now, if we come from certain religious traditions, it's possible that we might bulk at all this and say, no, no, that's not possible because we were made in the image of God. But that just sort of cherry-picks the Bible. Because the Bible is not just, well, God made human beings in the image of the divine, and then that's the, the end of the story. No, because those human beings were put in the world. If the world, too, wasn't made in the image of God, we couldn't fit in the world. You see? So, if we were made in the image of the divine, and we completely fit here, you open your mouth... The air goes in and it works. It fits you. You put food in your mouth from this place and it nourishes you. There's medicine here. And there are friends. Not just in the human species. And so the whole thing is the image of the divine. Including the beings we want to dismiss and control beings we don't even know because we're not able to make friends with them fully, not able to fully acknowledge them and see the sacredness of their being because they too were made by the divine, by the mystery, whatever you want to say. Now, as part of all this stuff that's, uh, that we're touching on here, one of the ways that we take away the dignity and intelligence and sacredness of other beings is that we infantilize them. Now, this can be challenging for people to reflect on, but it struck me in such a profound way when I witnessed someone's interaction with the Dangerous Wisdom Stallion. Now, as I said, standing in the presence of this particular stallion, it's not. this, of course, could happen with any horse, but this is a a fierce being, and you're aware of the incredible fierceness and how little he cares about human agendas. And that alone makes us uncomfortable because we're kind of needy, you know. We love dogs because when we call to a dog, we really get excited when they look at us and they're interested. And we love to see all the signs that they like us and that they're interested. 
Dogs make us feel important and loved. But the dangerous wisdom stallion, he's got no problem ignoring human neediness, human hopes and fears and cravings. He's got no problem ignoring what humans are up to in their deluded states of being. This is not a horse who's going to be deferential to a human of their own accord, from their own dignity. Because, of course, this is also a horse who knows that human beings don't come across as very trustworthy and peaceful, mutually respectful. And so we can get this stallion into a trailer, or we can get him to move from one place to another. And the way many people do this is that the human being supposedly raises up their energy and their presence or something like that. And it usually, in some way, that overtly puts pressure on the horse, essentially. Essentially, at the end of the line, what we've got is a threat. This is what I want, and you need to recognize that you're going to do it. And a horse like our dangerous wisdom stallion doesn't move because he thinks some human has nice energy. He moves because, well, you never know what's going to happen when a human being starts getting in your space. If you don't move, next thing you know, the humans are coming at you with a helicopter, trapping you in cages and cutting off your body parts. So he's got that experience, and there's no need to expose yourself to that. Being fearless is not the same as being foolish. So this is all backstory, just really trying to emphasize the intensity of this guy, his nobility, his dignity, and his general attitude. So we put all this on the table to help us receive what might at first seem like, you know, a story not worth mentioning, but here's what happened. So I was in an arena, close to the arena our dangerous wisdom stallion was in, and a fairly young woman kind of approached me. I turned and she's suddenly there. And I think it matters that this was a young woman because conquest consciousness has become associated in the dominant culture with patriarchy and other particular forms of oppression. And I don't know that this is very helpful. It seems to be like starting to become unhelpful. If an underlying style of consciousness is the disease, then particular forms of oppression are merely symptoms, however painful. Some medical symptoms can be horrifying, but it doesn't mean that we should abandon our duty to treat the underlying disease. And many people infected with conquest consciousness will naturally replicate their own oppression in various ways. And it seems to me that women in the horse world do this with their horses, as do men. Because we're all victims of this system. It's an important thing to see. Even the oppressors are victims to it. And the basic idea, in, as far as the horses go, go, is that we're going to control the horse, and the horse is going to do what we want. And basically, we're going to show them who's boss. That, in fact, has been at different times, and maybe still is in certain places, a kind of common theme, showing the horse who's boss, who's the leader. That's how easy it is to be a leader in this culture. You just boss another being around. You don't have to demonstrate any wisdom or compassion or grace. You just need to be able to boss somebody around. Not everybody goes into this so overtly, but there's still this idea, basically, I have an agenda, and if I happen to be very patient, I'll wait as long as I need. 
and I might even call that compassionate horsemanship, which is a terrible notion of compassion, but maybe my compassionate horsemanship approach, in quotes, will tell me I'll wait as long as it takes for the horse to finally agree with what I'm doing, but it's a Hobson's choice for the horse, which is not a real choice. In a lot of cases, horses are not really given a choice about their interactions with human beings. And when it comes to a horse like the dangerous wisdom stallion, he didn't really have a choice in the interaction that was about to unfold. If we gave him a choice, I don't think we'd have to guess what he would choose. He's pretty clear. In my experience, he didn't want anything to do with human agendas. He wanted to live wild with other horses and do the work the world needs horses to do. The whole world needs horses to do their work, which is not about being ridden or controlled by human beings, or being fenced in or anything like this. Now, humans wrestle with this same problem in a lot of different forms, even, say, within the pattern of insanity, because we think we want freedom and democracy, but we don't have freedom and democracy, and this becomes a whole elaborate debate and discussion about those things. But even the simple fact that if, if we have to live under a whole bunch of other people's agendas for huge portions of our lives, we're not free. Our corporate masters tell us where to be and what to do. And their agendas may do nothing but degrade the world. Still, we have to surrender to those agendas because most every workplace is a tyranny owned and operated by a very small number of people. So humans have become domesticated and we race. We're like thrilled to be under the tyranny of Google. There are people who are just so thrilled to be able to work at Google, wherever it might be. We're really glad to have these yokes put on us. And our domesticated style of living creates as much harm to us as we create when we capture and domesticate a wild stallion. It's a kind of traumatizing process for the soul, in either case, soul of the horse or soul of the human, or the human who has to do this to a horse. In the case of doing it to a horse, that's also a big burden to carry. When we're working under somebody else's agendas and we have to do things that we don't want to do, that we even may find, you know, kind of unethical, that creates a harm to us too. And so we should notice a difference there. There's a difference in saying that we should live ethically and that we have to live under, let us say, nature's agenda or we have to live under the agenda of sacredness. It's not really an agenda anymore in the same way. It's just to say that a fundamental part of life is that we don't get to choose certain things because some things are not up to us and that's really what we want. That's part of how our life gets meaning. And in general, we don't get to choose when volcanoes explode. We don't get to choose to live forever. And in general, we do not get to take from nature without consequences. We don't have, there's no impunity here. There are things that transcend us. And participating in what transcends us is part of how we have a meaningful life. And if we're merely participating in some corporate agenda that transcends our little ego, that's not sufficient. Okay, so anyway... Plenty of things in this world are, are not up to us, but nobody has to be stuck with narrow human agendas. Nevertheless, we force them onto each other all the time, and we force them onto all manner of sentient beings and ecologies. We just decide this is what we want, 
the ecologies are going to deal with it. The world's going to deal with it. And uh, the presence of this stallion is a threat to that. And we can see all this as part of conquest consciousness and also part of domestication. The domestication of human beings and the domestication of non-human beings too. And in a way, conquest consciousness is now seeking the domestication of the whole planet. And we see the consequences of that all, all around us and also even in our own bodies. Because the world's not going to submit. Now we have this horse then, this dangerous wisdom stallion, who pretty clearly seems uninterested in anything human beings want to do. And this young woman wants to control and ride another horse, so she also has to then control the dangerous wisdom stallion because he's in the arena where she wants to go riding. So two things happened that had an impact on me. And it's not like I'd never seen them before. It's just that they really stood out in this particular case with this particular stallion. Now, the first thing is this woman walks up to me. She's probably old enough to vote, but just barely. And she hands me the reins to the horse that she's going to ride. And she says, will you hold this horse? And she didn't exactly ask, which is fine. She just kind of could have been a moment of mindfulness or it could have been a manifestation of, of, of this same style of mind. She hands the uh, reins of the horse, and it's a really sweet mare, beautiful, lovely mare. And she, this woman wants me to keep track of the mare because she's got to move the dangerous wisdom stallion. And the first thing I noticed, because she sort of came up from behind, I was working, and there, here she is. And the first thing I noticed was that the mare had a bit in her mouth. And that always surprises me. I choose not to ride horses, but I can at least understand a human being who thinks to themselves, well, I'm fairly light, I have good balance and coordination, I have a high-tech saddle and a high-tech saddle pad, so I think riding is okay. Now, that's a debatable view, but I understand a person who's thinking along those lines. But I have to confess a good bit of uh, skepticism and concern about the use of bits. And we can try to understand this from the perspective of people who use bits, because I, I know how sensitive all of this is, in fact. Even the suggestion that person maybe should have to rethink whether they ride can be a very charged issue for people. Now with bits, I think the idea here, in the best, most charitable way of looking at it, is that people want to use the bit because they think it's going to provide a more nuanced connection. It's, a, it's some kind of medium of connection and communication with their horse. And so there's this maybe idealized view that I can just move my pinky finger and the horse knows what I want. And um, it's, it's a bit of a questionable suggestion for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them is if, if it's causing pain to the horse, then that doesn't seem to justify the use of it. If we feel that we're concerned for our safety, for instance, we're using, because that is part of the thinking for some people too, it's just that's how you control a horse, but then maybe we have to think about whether or not we should actually be riding, say, this particular horse, and maybe in general. If, if it's that scary that you would have to have this, uh, this use of pain in order to control the horse, because it's the evidence suggests that it's, probably really uncomfortable for them. And there's a lack of awareness on the part of riders sometimes with how much pressure they, they're putting, because if you don't know that it hurts, 
And if it seems like the horse can even be stubborn about it, and you sometimes pulling it really hard, and observers from the outside also don't seem to be able to register clearly how much pressure is being put. Because if you compare what people observe and what they think is happening, compared to what they find if they put a pressure sensor inside when the per- when the person is riding and pulling on the horse, you can find that the observer doesn't realize just how hard. The rider might be pulling, and maybe the rider doesn't know either. And I'm just suggesting I have a lot to really think carefully. What does this mean? Why do we think we're entitled to do it? And I can think of a contrast when I, when I would dance tango with somebody, for instance. I never th- thought that I had to insert a piece of metal into their mouth in order to have a really good sense of connection. And communication, and understanding one another, because when the connection is really good, in fact, what we find when we're dancing and in other times in our lives, when a connection is really good, we don't even understand how the communication happens because it seems to be without any overt medium. So not only do I need, I don't need the medium of a bit to communicate with another human being. I don't have to have a piece of metal in your mouth, but when we're really in sync. We can be surprised at how much we're resonating with each other, and I cover that a little bit in the Magic Mind Synchrony podcast episode. But dancers all the time will feel that, say, the leader feels that they just thought the idea; they didn't even really do anything, and the follower responded. And I've had that experience with horses, having the thought and seeing the horse respond to it. Now, somehow, I'm sure maybe there's some way that there there's some medium because, of course. If we're very skeptical and hard-nosed about it, we say, "Well, there's got to be something that's going on." Although we have clear empirical evidence for the ability to to either perceive or even perhaps communicate with no obvious physical channels making that possible. So it's not clear why does why do minds synchronize? It seems like there there's a difference between. A physical connection, or even in the brain, we talk about the contrast between anatomical connection and functional connection. The different parts of the brain can be functionally connected somehow, and、uh, they just get in the same rhythm. And so, it's just a, really asking the question: What do we think we're doing when we stick a bit in a horse's mouth, and why? Why do we think we're entitled to do it? And does it really hold up if we reflect? That I don't think that I would approach most people in my life, you know, friends, family, or whoever, and say, you know, we could communicate better if you just let me stick some copper wire between your teeth and yank on your gums now and then. Seems to be a, a bit of a confused orientation. And so, wisdom and compassion seem to side decisively against the use of bits. So, I first experienced the surprise and disappointment that I usually experience when I see a horse with a bit in their mouth. And notice, I'm saying a horse with a bit, not a horse with a bit in its mouth, but a horse with a bit in his or her mouth. That's another way that we try to control the threat of a horse. Is it's it's an it, and the bit it seems to me presences the entitlement human beings have toward the whole world. People decide that they are entitled not only to ride horses, but to ride this horse who might not want to be ridden. Either now, just because they don't feel like it, like as if we don't sometimes f- say, "I just don't feel like doing that." A friend calls us up, say, "Yeah, you want to come out?" And say, I don't feel like it. 
Well, let me stick a piece of metal in your mouth and, you know, you'll, it'll be good for you. And part of the dangerous wisdom of horses is that they defy our entitlement. In a way, it's a fairly extraordinary assertion that we're just entitled to put all our burdens onto a horse. And it's not just our physical body and our saddle and our saddlebags and whatever else we want to throw on the horse's back. But we also throw our suffering and our ignorance onto the horse. And we do that whether we're riding or not. But certainly, you know, people are just inventing new ways. You know, now there's these, this endurance riding as if the horse really wants to do that. Hey, I've got an idea. I mean, if you asked your friend, I have an idea, let's have an endurance walk. And your friend said, you know, I'm not into it. No, you are. <laughs> we find this really weird. So we just put all these burdens on the horse, and part of the dangerous wisdom they represent is to ask the question, what makes you think you're entitled to do this? Entitled to do it. So I felt that shock and disappointment, not only about this, the bit being there, but also just how it relates to the way we educate our children in the dominant culture, because this was a privileged and well-educated young woman. So I'm looking at this and saying, this is a person who we consider to have a pretty blessed life, and they seem to have a mind good enough to get them into a good university and so on. So how is it that this doesn't occur to them? But this first part of the interaction was not the end of my surprise, because then this young woman went and moved our dangerous wisdom stallion again so she could ride. And here's the crux of it. When she got this stallion's attention, and she got him to go through the gate and leave the arena, she, of course, exclaimed, Good boy! I want to remind us all that we're talking about human ignorance. And in telling this story, it might seem that I'm talking about somebody, some human being who isn't me, it's not me, who is dealing with a horse, and I, I I don't do that. And what I'm suggesting is that this is a symptom of human ignorance. There's something going on here that applies to all of us. For one thing, if if we could somehow stick the average human in this situation, especially I would say the average human in the dominant culture, they might be tempted to relate to the horse in, in ways that presence or indicate or manifest the things that we're getting at. So the story is not about this particular instance in a way, and yet we have to consider its details to try to get at an ignorance that might be infecting all of us. Whatever our relationship with horses, whatever kind of language we use, but still the question is why does this tend to happen in relationship to horses? Now, I think there was a little bit more... (laughs) In it, I don't know if I can nail it right without sounding like I'm I'm making a caricature or I'm being sarcastic. So just imagine saying it the way you would say it to a, a small child, like a little baby or a toddler. And this is an exceedingly common expression in the horse-human world. And this particular instance horrified me. It just really, really, it struck me. Our dangerous wisdom stallion is probably too much in a state of grace to find that language humiliating at all. He's too detached from human agendas to to worry that his dignity wasn't being revered. 
But for me, I really could not believe that such an intense being, such a noble person, someone so skilled and intelligent, was being talked down to like this. This majestic being, this knife edge of wildness. And someone who couldn't at all match the, the grace and grit, really, at least in their current form of development, was speaking to him the way they would speak to a toddler. Now this stallion, this dangerous wisdom stallion, he could, of course, easily kill an unarmed human. That's one of the reasons why humans always arm themselves with something when they go in. And he has so much grace and grit and intelligence that if we were to drop that horse, that stallion, and that human being, and in fact, probably a lot of average human beings, if we were to take them and drop them into a remote place in the wilderness, we could reliably bet on the stallion to survive for the next six months and kind of guess that the human wouldn't do so well. If we're just dropping them in, they've got nothing. And yet we talk to the horse the way we would talk to a toddler. Why do humans infantilize these beings? You may or may not ride horses. You may or may not have them in your life actively where you can communicate with them and address them. And if you do, you might not refer to them in ways that assume your superiority. Of course, we can do that in a lot of subtle ways. It doesn't have to be this overt. But what we're talking about goes beneath the surface of this story. It has to do with the danger horse's presence in relation to human ignorance. And that includes all the entitlement of human privilege and really the whole way human beings organize their lives on the basis of conquest consciousness. So let's try to stick with this, even if it seems a little narrow or weird or I'm not sure where we're going with this, that's all good, because it's dangerous wisdom, so there's a lot that it might be touching on. The spectrum of responses to the dangerous wisdom of any wild being seems to range from infantilizing to bullying to vilifying. There are probably some other options in there, too. Of course, there's just sheer terror. We do uh, experience the sacred that way. But when we're talking about especially wild beings, these three are common, and they seem to emerge naturally from conquest consciousness. And in a way, they just appear as varieties of domination or varieties of manipulation and control of ourselves and the beings in question. Now, all of these forms of domination go with a loss of reverence for life and a loss of any real sense of the mutuality of life, including the mutuality of dignity and reverence. The mutuality of dignity and reverence. Because we might think that to show reverence does that harm our dignity? No, it actually expresses our dignity when we know how to show reverence. Reverence for life, the great ethical principle that Albert Schweitzer discovered in the wild. And so our ways of relating to horses and other beings often come with a loss of our own dignity. Because when we, when we take away the mind 
the heart, the dignity, the reverence from another being, when we subjugate another being in any way, including just subjugating them to our concepts, we lose our own dignity. It doesn't matter what the being is. When you subjugate that being, you're losing your dignity. And that's what's so difficult, or one of the things that's so difficult about leadership in the dominant culture, because we don't really raise leaders, not in the sense of a person who has real wisdom, love, and beauty, real compassion and grace. But we do have people in control. We do have, quote-unquote, thought leaders, quote-unquote, political leaders, quote-unquote, business leaders. So we don't, but I think it's even better to say we don't have leaders. And it's even weird to see sometimes people trying to teach leadership using horses. And these are very intelligent well-intentioned people who love horses in many cases. The question is really what are we going to do? How are we going to face the dangerous wisdom of the horse? Which for many people in the role of leader should merely bring a kind of uh, deep sense of, of discomfort, possibly even shame. When you look at what leadership means in, in the world, if you look at the consequences, look at what we do to the world. So, boy, this is threatening territory when we consider all that. And people in control, those with power and influence, real power and influence, because keep in mind, again, we don't have, say, on Turtle Island, there's no democracy here. It's clear, look at the research, when the will of the majority of people on Turtle Island conflicts with what a small number of people find to be in their best interest, that small group will win. And those with power and influence naturally fall into a loss of dignity. And they often demand that people simply do what they say, whatever they say, and they use all kinds of propaganda and so on to, to make that happen. Now, I hear baby talk all the time at horse barns, in horse pastures, at horse rescues. And... I think we can all recognize, we can have some sensitivity, some compassion, real compassion for the fact that it feels to the people doing it probably like a spontaneous and genuine expression of love. People seem to feel love for their horses or they want to believe that the experience they're having is love. And it somehow it comes out as baby talk. So spontaneously that it seems quite telling. Because from a certain perspective, certainly from the perspective of, of some of the teachings of the wisdom traditions, it seems inappropriate when we hear it. Now, sometimes, of course, it, it can be okay. Maybe we're being playful. You know, we'll even, we, we do that all the time, even with each other. You know, there are moments when we engage in, in baby talk. It can be cute for a moment. The question is, why does it seem so common? Why does it seem so spontaneous? And what's, what do we learn from the incredible contrast between baby talk and the dignity of the horse and the dangerous wisdom stallion in particular? It really stood out as symptomatic of human ignorance. This person saying, good boy, in this baby talk way, 
to this particular stallion. And I, 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 we're generalizing. I just mean that, you know, like I don't do this with any horses, you know. Occasionally, sure, I'll sweet talk to a horse. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say to a mare, hey, gorgeous, or I'll say to a, a, a stallion or gelding, hi there, handsome. But not so far as this, and certainly not, who's my little cute horse? I mean, let's say you wanted to meet with the Dalai Lama or an indigenous elder, and you gesture for them to sit down, and when they sit down, do you say, good boy, or who's a little handsome Dalai Lama? You know, <laughs> is that what we do? And imagine that we went to a deeply realized yogi, whatever tradition, I don't care, a saint, a monk, a priest, deeply realized spiritual person, or an indigenous elder, and we ask them for teachings. And we give ourselves to those teachings because we, we love the teacher and we want to become wiser. And every time they come to praise our progress, they speak to us in baby talk. Now, what might we think about our teacher's view of us, if that's what we got? Oh, good girl. Who's a good girl? Who learned something smart today? You know, or consider your own mature relationships. If the primary way, or let's say that a common, spontaneous way of talking to your friends and lovers was baby talk, what would you think about those relationships? Or what would someone observing them think if that was just common? Not every once in a while, but multiple times in, in a given day or in a given span of a few hours of interaction. How much baby talk do we want in the bedroom, for instance? Let's say we sleep with someone for the first time and they, they use a good bit of baby talk, or let's say any at all. Would we consider that a sign of trouble, or is that a sign of maturity in relationship? And yet people use baby talk with their horses as part, somehow, for them, it feels connected to their idea of love for their horses. And so... I just think maybe we have a real question here about how the horse threatens notions of love that we want to cling to. How the horse threatens our comfortable notions of ourselves and the way we want to love. As opposed to the soul's potentials, which might be much vaster. In a way, the horse threatens our image of ourselves as mature beings who know how to love and live with wisdom, skill, and grace. I've mentioned this in many other areas of my work, but it's really important to mention it here again, that we can quite seriously, quite soberly suggest that human beings in the dominant culture do not attain full maturity that domestication and conquest consciousness do not reliably produce adults, that true adults are rare in present-day conquest consciousness and true elders are even rarer, where an elder is somebody with a, really a lot of deeply realized wisdom, compassion, and grace. There are exceptions, of course. There are some adults and even elders who have been born in the dominant culture or within its sphere of influence, they usually have to find their maturity somewhere else. It's not it's in none of the mainstreams of the dominant culture. Certainly we have wisdom traditions even in the dominant culture. And certainly people are might have lineages from outside the dominant culture, and that can be also where they find that maturity. Sometimes it involves a lot of suffering for them to arrive at that maturity. 
And sometimes those figures were marginalized by the dominant culture, and that's maybe part of how they were able to find eldership and find adulthood. And that's no justification of the dominant culture. That's still a criticism. We don't want to let the dominant culture off the hook because it accidentally created a few adults. It reliably creates people who have a lot of symptoms of ill health in their bodies and their minds and their world, beings who possibly lack full maturity. So conquest consciousness is traumatizing, fragmenting, and limiting. And it seems that all of this is part of what the dangerous wisdom of horses reminds us of and why horses threaten our comfortable notions about who we are, how we live, and how we express love. What it means to grow up. So the whole meaning of our life. And while we can admit that occasional sweet talk or playful talk or even baby talk can be pleasant, among adults, we have to look at why it's so darn common with horses. And we also have to look at the extremes that we can see. When we observe horse-human relationships, we, we can see a regular shift sometimes from baby talk to, hey, hey there, watch it, do this, do that. You know, we go from baby talk to yanking on a lead rope or using an entitled posture and presence with the horse. And so there, thereby there's this vacillation between dominance and baby talk. It surely seems that the ego benefits both from infantilizing the threat of a dangerous horse while also diffusing the discomfort of oppression. Now remember, as we dominate a horse, we functionally lose our own dignity. And as we grow up in conquest consciousness, we miss out on our own maturity, which also is part of our dignity. We don't get to have our full dignity if we haven't gotten to our full maturity. And so lacking that full maturity, we try to compensate by making the horse into a baby, and thereby making us the wise parent who always knows best. The horse doesn't know what's best, but the human does. And as we, were, we oppress our horse in this process, we take the sting from our conscience by sounding cute. Oh, it can't really be oppression because I'm not who would oppress my widow horsey pie, right? We love our widow horse, so what we do couldn't be domination. If we baby talk enough, then the bit is fine. And if we baby talk enough, it must be that we're the parent. We really are mature. And part of what we have to ask is, what can the horse do to help us to mature as beings, to mature in our love also, to mature in our capacity for love and our embodiment and expression of love and compassion and grace? Because clearly that can't be it. We don't expect the Pope to come out talking like that. 
So how can we be practicing maturity and practicing looking deeply into the question of what does it mean to love a being? The horse presents that question. What does it mean to love a horse? Because it's, if you look at the wisdom traditions, it is not taken to be sufficient that you provide lodging, and in, 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 in this case, the equivalent of being in a dog crate all day long, for many horses, they're in stalls, but to provide some place to, to stay and to be trapped there and to provide food. We can have very abusive parents who always keep a roof over our heads, keep clothes on our back, and keep food in our bellies. That's not a def- definition of love. They may rush us to the hospital if something goes wrong. They may take us to the hospital after beating us. So we have to ask what delusions about ourselves, what delusions about love, what delusions about nature, what delusions about reality do we have? And recognize that the horse threatens anything that isn't real. And therefore the horse asks us, what does real love look like? What does it mean to love a horse or a human being? What does it mean to love the world we share and really take care of it and be connected to it? I'm not going to stick a bit in the world's mouth. Baby talk is not the only symptom of our ignorance, by far. And so that's why this, at the end of the day, this has nothing to do with that. We can find people who never engage in baby talk in any of their interactions with horses or adult humans. Although, oddly enough, even a tough old cowboy will call a horse boy or girl. That sounds a little different than the good boy that, <laughs> that we sometimes hear in the baby talk. It's, you know, it's a little more mature, good boy, good boy, good girl. But we still got to wonder why that tough old cowboy thinks he has to assert that he's the adult in the relationship rather than letting the horse decide who's the adult and let them make that decision without even the vaguest threat of aggression. And maybe there could just be equals in the relationship, different, but fundamentally sacred and equal. Two beings who who both suffer, two beings who both want to be happy. One happens to be a horse person, the other happens to be a human person. And at a conscious level, you know, I think a lot of us, we, we really have to deal with the adulting of the dominant culture, you know. We think to ourselves, hey, I've got a mortgage, I've got a job, I've got responsibilities, I've got a car, I've got insurance, I've got all these things, I've got a horse to take care of, vet bills and all this. I'm an adult. Because we feel the burden of adulthood in the dominant culture. We have to put that in quotes because it's the dominant culture's version of adulthood and again, it doesn't necessarily mean full maturity. And adulthood, realizing adulthood in the dominant culture by its definitions, these silly things that we're paying taxes and we have to, we have all this nonsense to deal with, that doesn't make us mature in relationship to our own deepest potentials, certainly not in relationship to what the wisdom traditions teach us about our potentials. And maybe there's some part of us that realizes that, recognizes that we are confused about so many things and that really 
we, there's a part of us that just knows we're not, I'm not an adult. I'm not really a grown-up. I'm not really mature. And this is separate. We have to separate this out from Sophia's perpetual youth. You know, there is a part of us that is ever youthful. That's not the same thing. It, it, we only realize that part by fully maturing. So this is not to, to, to make everything heavy. Enlightenment is enlightenment. It's not enheaviment. And it's not endarkenment. And we can't get to it until we can face some of the things that might be difficult, uncomfortable, disappointing. Anytime we're confronted with dangerous wisdom, we have to try to recognize what's so dangerous about it. And if we're caught in ignorance, and if we can begin to recognize, it's very hard to recognize and really accept, acknowledge the ways that ignorance drives our existence. But if we can start to recognize it, we can start to make progress. And that suggestion alone, that ignorance drives our existence, that it's, it's a major force, has always bothered human beings when they're philosophers, shamans, sages, priestesses, and prophets of all kinds, have told them that they are behaving ignorantly and that in general we're steeped in ignorance, maybe our whole culture. And people usually don't want to hear that. That's why they killed Socrates. That's why some of the prophets of the past have had such difficulties. And it's partly that something in us recognizes this problem in general. You know, that there's something in the soul that knows that we, ha- we need to keep going. And the ego, of course, has unconscious dimensions to it that sense these threats. And that's how we engage in the repression and suppression. And sometimes we have to just lash out in violence, really. And then if the horse presents this to us, reminds us of our ignorance, reminds us of our immaturity, reminds us that we have a fuller capacity for peace and love and compassion and grace and strength, resilience. All that then becomes part of the horse's threat to us. Because there is a part of us that's just afraid of reality. It's a weird thing. You can refer back to the contemplation on that, first couple contemplations for the a dangerous Wisdom of this season, episodes one, two, three, they're about that fear, and they are really worth listening to and thinking about. And one of the things also that's at play here, the, I think that maybe the final el- general element that we want to bring out before we come to a close for this contemplation, is that w- wisdom, and it could be in the presence of a horse, Wisdom tells us immediately, when we are confronted with the presence of wisdom, we get the immediate sense that we're going to have to renounce. We're going to have to give up things in our life right now that we cling to. And that presents a lot of danger. And the horse has got that in their presence, in their very being. This message, you're going to have to renounce things that you currently cling to. And that's not easy to even hear, (laughs) really. Since we're steeped in ignorance, it means that we may not know what thing we have to renounce. It could be anything. It could be everything in a relative way. It is. It's the end of our world. 
So here's the horse announcing the end of our world. That's that's not threatening. Sure, of course, it's tricky. It's very discomforting to imagine we might have to renounce something. And the horse in its very presence confronts us with this, confronts us with the fact that some aspect of the cosmos will forever escape our control, that we can't operate our lives on the basis of manipulation and control, no matter how much we try. We, we are doers rather than dancers. And in relative terms, we seem to successfully manipulate and control the world. It appears that way to us. But again, this is relative terms because, in fact, we can't manipulate and control the world. When we try, what we do is dig ourselves deeper into our own ignorance and its consequences. And sometimes it's because of our success that things get get worse. It's this apparent success because the apparent success comes with consequences because it's based in ignorance. I know this might seem tricky because it's so intimate. And so then it seems like we're talking at some level because we're talking about something general but super intimate. It can feel abstract. But this is not abstract. This is how we function. This is every moment when we go into a situation, something is there trying to organize it for us to feel okay. And the horse threatens all of this. All of it. And we can see that people can get a horse to do whatever they want. It's just playing out the game with a horse, the way we play the game out in other realms. We take it to be a huge accomplishment that we manipulated and controlled a horse. We got a horse to do what we wanted it to do. And we don't look deeply enough to see that we're just ignoring the problem. It's like the way Elon Musk is trying to manipulate and control reality, right? He's trying, I've got a rocket into, the, into space. It's the same game. It's the same game of delusion. And outer space threatens our delusions too. You can see how many people experience what's called the overview effect, like William Shatner did. Did the world change after he saw that? No. We can't go to space to save ourselves, and it would be really great if we could just turn toward the horse and face the same prospects of, well, what are we going to have to renounce? And the horse just threatens this basic orientation that we can manipulate and control and succeed to gain what we want. Our whole edifice of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain Seeking praise and avoiding blame. Seeking gain and avoiding loss. Seeking fame and avoiding ill repute. We have an entire edifice. This is what we are doing with our doing lives. And the horse will have none of it. The horse says no. And so that no, their presence, it just threatens the whole mirage that human beings try to live in. And we avoid questioning this mirage, this pattern of insanity, And before the delusion can begin to enter consciousness, before that questioning of it can enter consciousness, we repress and suppress. And the horse can bring those delusions into consciousness, begin to help us to see reality. But then we'd have to face them, so we try not to look. 
But the thread of the horse still touches the soul, and it says to us, you're going to have to give all that up. And the ego says, what do you mean? And the horse replies, the whole thing, praise and blame, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and ill repute, none of it's real, and you're going to have to give it up. And we may say, no, 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 I'm going to become a famous horse person, or I'm going to become a good lawyer or doctor, and then I'll enjoy controlling horses. Horses are a rich person's domain, after all, so I'll have money, and then I'll have pleasure and meaning. And a lot of meaning that we have foisted onto our relationship with the horse is not real. Just like the love we have foisted onto the horse is not always in line with our fullest potential. If I could just put it as gently as possible. that we Can we just admit we have confused notions of love? And that's because we have confused understanding of meaning. Meaning and emotions are in part fabricated, and we take our relationship with the horse to be meaningful because human beings hunger for meaning. And we're good at manufacturing it because we don't understand the meaning of life. Now this is all really difficult to contemplate. Let's summarize it a little and, and just leave it. It's, it's, it, get, it might need to germinate in the soul a bit. We've considered the way the dangerous wisdom horse's presence threatens our ideas about ourselves, including our ideas about love, our ideas about what we are entitled to, and really the entire way we organize our lives in the dominant culture. And so that means our ideas about nature, our ideas about the land, our ideas about the meaning of life. It's all there. And in a way we tried to look at it, I don't know, some people will, will be really bothered because, for instance, maybe they engage in a lot of baby talk and they ride their horse and they use a bit. So all this is like crazy and the ego is ready to dismiss it all and have a fight about it. Maybe for some people who don't have horses in their lives or don't do those particular things, maybe you have horses in your life, the questions to wrestle with are still there. Well... Do I know what it means to love my horse? What's the definition of that? What am I practicing when I practice it? And am I really in attunement with spiritual and ecological reality in my relationships with horses, whatever beings? Now, we've only scratched the surface, and next time we're going to go into a few of the details as they relate to the interwovenness of spiritual and ecological reality and the incredible challenges that that presents to us living in the contemporary world. In relating to a horse, we cannot consider our relationship wise, skillful, graceful, loving, and compassionate if we don't relate in a manner attuned to spiritual and ecological reality. And yet, horse-human relationships evidence a great deal of spiritual and ecological ignorance. 
if we have any interest in deepening our capacity for wisdom, love, and beauty, if we care about any sentient beings at all, and if we have any sense of the absolutely vital importance of ecological insight for us, and spiritual insight too, then we can learn a lot by allowing the horse to lead us into the places that scare us. And so I hope you'll, you'll join in for that contemplation. And in that one, I think I'll share uh, one possible name that we could give to our dangerous wisdom stallion, a very respectful name. And that name will in turn open up some of our thinking about uh, how we live and what might have to change. What, what are the real challenges? What are the real threats that the horse is reminding us of that are present because of our ignorance? If you have any questions, reflections, or stories to share about the dangerous wisdom of horses and other beings in the larger community of life, please get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org and we might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the horse and the soul of the world are not separate things. Take good care of them.